Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome to the SASPOD Lakmali Jayasinghe, recent PhD from the Department of Comparative Literature at Stanford and current lecturer in the Civic, Liberal and Global Education program on campus. Uh, she's also an associate of the Humanity Center at the University of Rochester, senior editor of the Stanford International Policy Review, and assistant editor of the Stanford Global Shakespeare Encyclopedia. So you can imagine that we are thrilled that she was able to fit in the Sasquatch. Uh, thank you for making time for us, Lakmali. How are you? I'm keeping well, Lalita. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to be on Sasquatch. As we have so much to talk about in not very much time, we are going to divide our conversation today into three blocks, teaching, research, and then zooming in on translation. So let's start by talking about uh, the new civic, liberal, and global education program. I understand it's a gen ed requirement that all incoming students have to take. Is that right? Yeah, so it's one among several first year requirements, but it's the newest one, as you mentioned. Um, it's a program which is aiming to foster um, intellectual curiosity, communication skills, and critical thinking, uh, particularly to support first-year students in achieving a successful transition to college-level education, because these students are kind of used already to learning in high school environments, and how do you make that transition a smooth one uh, as they enter college-level education? Um, it's also about understanding or acquiring the ability to make uh, a living, but also about exploring what makes living worthwhile. So it's not just about, oh, hey, how can I get that six-figure salary once I finish my Stanford degree? But then, you know, what kind of job do I want to do? And what are the ethical implications of perhaps picking a career that you're picking? Um, so it really also develops the skills that empower and enable us to live together in our own communities and then in a diverse nation and then in a globally connected society. Um, and if you look at the way the courses are structured, is structured it's a, a sequence of three courses. Mm -hmm. So the first course really focuses on the self um, and we call that, that series of courses um, focus on liberal education. And then there's focus on society in the second quarter where you look at the ethics um, of citizenship and what it means to be a citizen. And then we move on to the third quarter where we give students the ability to engage with the world or the, or the global perspectives related to humanities and uh, liberal arts. So that's what the program is about. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's a great program and I'm really enjoying uh, teaching in it. I have taught classes uh, that were part of ethnic studies requirements, quote unquote, um, uh, at other universities uh, that were mandated and not every student that takes a mandated class loves it. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you negotiate that? 
Um, so yes, it is a requirement, right? So <laughs> that is something they cannot get out of. Uh, but what's interesting about the college program is that there's a variety of courses you can select from. And students actually have a lot of autonomy um, in picking their courses because you can range the courses. Um, so you can come up with a selection and most students get their first selections from what I understand. So they do have the decision to choose. And these are uh, courses which uh, fall within a spectrum, starting from humanities um, to even STEM-focused courses. So if you are more interested in, uh, let's say, exploring the ethics of uh, genetic study, there are courses with a specific focus on those STEM aspects. Right. So you get to choose, right? Uh, so it's a very liberal, it's still within the liberal studies framework, but you get to sort of pick the courses which uh, perhaps converge with your subject interests. Got it. Okay, that's actually very good. I do want to ask you a little bit more about this concept of international education, mm -hmm. um, because it, it seems that in many contexts, what may be considered an, a quote unquote international education promotes, in fact, a Eurocentric view of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I imagine some or even many of your students are from cultures that, for example, have strong oral traditions, mm -hmm. which may have been framed in modern Western or indeed quote unquote, international education as less than. So how do we fight the privileging of the written word? That's a wonderful question, Lalita. So I think that's something I also work on myself. In my own research, um, I do try to push against privileging the written word. Of course, the written word is important for mm -hmm. sure, right? But my position on this is that the written word is not the only form of knowledge creation and, and, and knowing uh, the knowledges which are created by other groups of people. Mm -hmm. So in my own work, uh, in my research, I combine the written word with oral histories, with uh, visual arts such as film, documentary. I myself have um, completed oral histories in collaboration with the Stanford Historical Society. Uh, so in my own work, I bring um, other forms of uh, epistemologies or, or knowledge making ways. Um, and even in the course I'm teaching right now, which is called Stories Everywhere, and note that it is not literature or you know, written word focused, but stories yeah. everywhere. Right. So stories could be expressed through different media. And these are not just stories which are embedded in written word, but also oral, oral narratives, right? Film, documentary. So you see in the syllabus, we bring together the written word, as I mentioned, documentary, film, oral narratives, graphic novels, and even podcasts, actually, what ah. we're doing right now. Um, so we do push against that sort of hegemonic view of knowledge making, knowledge creation, and knowledge sharing through merely the written word. Uh, and I think it's a great space for students to get to know those different media and genres and try to experiment knowledge creation through those media themselves. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, you, you referenced your own work, so I want to hear a lot more mm -hmm. about it. Um, I understand that in your research, um, you worked on issues relating to borders, especially in the global south. So can you please tell us more? Absolutely. Um, so my dissertation research um, is on how immigration law, particularly visa law and policy, impinge on the rights and dignities um, of applicants to visas specifically from the Global South, uh, because really it's in the case of citizens of the Global South that visas become relevant. Um, since if you are a passport holder from uh, a country uh, in the uh, Global North, so to speak, 
um, really the um, you don't have to apply for visas as often uh, or in mm -hmm. most instances, right? Obviously, if you are going for a long term uh, stay in a particular country, you will have to go through the visa process. But if you compare a global citizen, uh, sorry, uh, a citizen from the global south to a citizen from the global north, it is the citizen from the global south who has to repeatedly apply yeah. for visas. Yeah. So really, my research looks at um, how visas first came about, and it is during a very specific social political point in history, uh, just before the Second World War, um, when um, certain countries which were allied with the with Nazi Germany wanted to introduce ways to limit the movement of passport carrying Jews. Um, so I actually uh, found out that a lot of these rules kind of supported, they were almost a handmaiden of Nazi policies, wow. uh, which were discriminating against Jews. And then over time, these laws were sort of almost uncritically adapted and adopted by the first world to now create another category of discriminated uh, individuals who are the less privileged um, citizens from from the global south so this visa the the visa laws and policies we use we come across today are really almost fossilized uh, from the uh, second world war times hmm. um, so that's something that i've been studying um, and i do that by looking at narratives uh, in literature, in film, uh, in documentary format, and also using oral history, uh, because these are not narratives, obviously, which belong to the, in the historical records with a capital H. Um, these are minor histories and minor narratives which do not get that space um, and which do not belong to the official records. It's not in uh, any legal documents or any uh, major historical records, but they are embedded in these alternative ways of telling stories, which are what I'm tracing, which, are, which, which is what I'm pulling out to uh, point out this problem. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for doing that work. Um, I imagine it's uh, it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. Are you working on how COVID is affecting that? I actually heard today and, and the podcast will come out um, a few weeks after we're recording, but I'm sure these issues will uh, remain relevant for a while, um, that India is kind of putting a reciprocal uh, COVID requirement for travelers from the UK because they feel that that the UK or, or England is being too strict uh, with mm -hmm. passport holders from India. And so there's also these these kind of uh, uh, chess games that go on between nation states that affects no one that's making decisions, uh, but in, uh, affecting and I imagine COVID is making that worse. So are you working on that? Yes, so I have been working on that uh, since the pandemic began, and that was also the point at which I was wrapping up my research, and uh -huh. then, you know, the pandemic kind of introduced a whole set of restrictions, uh, which had a very specific impact on international students. Um, mm. So that's what my oral history project is primarily about. Um, so I started um, doing this oral history project uh, in collaboration with the Stanford Historical Society Oral History Program, which was um, called in transit, um, an oral history project about borders. And, it, and coincidentally, it uh, won the 2021 Susan Scorfield uh, Award for Oral History. Um, so it, it got, a, thank you. It got a lot of attention. Primarily, I think it was because um, those narratives were slipping through the cracks. And that's what I began to notice. Obviously, the pandemic made life very difficult for all of us. And we were all caught up in our own sort of issues and problems. But at the same time, I noticed how so many new restrictions were coming up for international students who yeah. were on non-immigrant visas in the US. 
Um, and they have extremely conflicting directives as well. And universities mm-hmm. themselves didn't know how to handle some of those directives and struggled a lot and were not in some, at some points, they were not even able to advise students appropriately uh, because it was so confusing. Right. So I noticed what was going on and I started this oral history project, which captured some of those um, problems um, that international students from Stanford were going through. Um, They were stuck in different parts of the world. Um, They were scared that their student status would be um, jeopardized. Then there were fears of not leaving the US in case they couldn't come back. So even when family members were going through extreme sickness, these students were not able to leave in the fear that again, their visa status would be jeopardized. So these were some of the issues I looked at in my oral history project. And um, I um, continue to work on that aspect. Um, So you mentioned that I'm um, working with the uh, University of Rochester. I'm an associate with the um, University of Rochester Humanities Center Soil Seminar on uh, migration. Uh, And this is something that I continue to work on to understand how particularly citizens from the global South are made vulnerable by these rules. Uh, I'll just give one example. So one is the um, COVID pass that uh, the uh, European Union came up with a few months ago. Um, Initially, when it first came out, they only okayed certain types of vaccines which were produced uh, and uh, verified um, and used within the European Union. So although the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine was part of the accepted vaccines, the Oxford, the the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was affiliated with Oxford, but which was produced through the Serum Institute in India was not valid. It Mm -hmm. was not considered as a valid form of vaccination, right? And of course this affected pretty much everybody who had the AstraZeneca Serum Institute version, which was everybody in India, everybody in Sri Lanka and pretty much South Asia. Um, So again, you see that inequality, right? Introducing a certain um, form of travel restriction, which has an impact on a large group of already vulnerable citizens from the global South and they they can do nothing about it. Um, Are they now going to somehow reverse the fact they've taken the Serum Institute vaccination in order to make travel easy. uh, And um, it's just illogical, some of these rules, right? It's absolutely not taking into consideration existing inequalities or the real real sort of lived conditions of people in the rest of the world, I would say. And these are issues that I'm continuing to study about and um, keep track of for sure. Uh, it's uh, it will be a long term project as uh, as vaccine equity or vaccine justice continues to be a, a massive issue and I'm sure will continue to be as we as things develop. You talk about oral histories and I feel oral histories are often described as bringing the voices of the previously unheard mm-hmm. uh, into the foreground and indeed and not privileging the written word and 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 this is of course, true. But within that, I imagine we're, we don't hear everyone. So the people that a researcher, especially with an international researcher, has access to will still not be perhaps representative of all the marginalized communities whose voices do, do not usually make it into a, a book or another written account of history. So there's always these additional layers of access and and, uh, equity. 
what are your thoughts on that? Is that a real issue or is that superimposed? And if it is a real issue, what can we do to uh, really have everybody's voices brought into our discussions? Um, so that's a really important question, um, especially since, um, you know, power, right, and hegemony right. is kind of, it's something that you cannot really avoid when it comes to creating legitimate spaces to perhaps archive these oral histories, right? Uh, because even, even an oral history ultimately needs a depository. Uh, for people to access it in the future, right? Otherwise, it becomes yet another transitionary, um, transitory uh, point of interaction, right? Um, and that's something uh, which I think institutions, um, especially in academia, can contribute towards. Because my experience is that, especially when these oral histories are about, about once again, non-Western. Uh, um, individuals and subject matter, it becomes very difficult to find spaces which are willing to house those uh, archives, mm. right? Um, so I've been lucky because we have a very robust oral history program at Stanford who's doing wonderful work in giving space to unheard voices and unheard uh, communities. Uh, but then that's Stanford for you, right? Which does think about these issues. Um, but I know outside institutions which actually pay attention to these issues, it's very hard to even find a space to house the house and deposit your uh, oral histories that you've collected. Um, so that's where scholars get scholars who work on these is issues get sidelined, I think, uh, and that's where. Um, institutions can be more supportive of scholars who work on these kinds of minor uh, traditions or minor, uh, minor literatures, or even communities whose voices have not been given um, a real platform uh, to be heard. So one of the aspects, um, and thank you for the shout out to the Stanford Oral History Project. It's yeah, fantastic, and I love to hear it. Um, one of the issues with access and, and also issues of power are around language, who can mm -hmm. speak, uh, what languages are readily available for translation to be interpreted. Mm -hmm. um, so let's move our conversation into the issue of translation, because I know that's a huge part of your work, as it is of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you translate from Sinhala into English, is that correct? Um, I translate from Sinhala into English um, and vice versa, and mm -hmm. also I work with uh, Korean, uh, so I try to focus on two quote-unquote minor languages, you know, minor to whom is a question to ask in these cases. Well, but, let's ask um, that question, so right. what... <laughs> Um, because presumably you don't always say quote unquote minor languages. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what is some other terminology that we can use when we talk about Sinhala and Korean? And those are um, also, I mean, I don't know in terms of numbers of speakers, how comparable mm -hmm. they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, compared to Korean, Sinhala is an ultra minor language, as David Damrosh would say. That's a term that he uses in his uh, recent book. Um, but really, it's about figuring out... Um, you know, what kinds of knowledges and epistemologies exist out there and why do they exist, right? Now, if you take English and French uh, and Spanish even to some extent, you see that there's so many platforms, so much space um, for anything which is written in these languages pretty much, right? Uh, but if you take even, uh, if you take languages like Korean and singular, um, these are cultures which have been around for thousands and thousands of years uh, with such rich literary and cultural heritages, right? 
Um, but it's very difficult to find platforms which feature and which uh, really give space uh, for these uh, bodies of knowledge. Um, so I think if I have to come up with a definition, I would probably look at that uh, imbalance of power um, in the world of knowledge. Um, so there is a certain um, celebration of certain epistemologies and knowledge forms simply because they have the privilege of being written in the European languages, uh, which are prominent um, in everyday discourse and in academia in particular, right? Um, so I would think about minor languages as not simply languages which come from the global south, but also it's about the political uh, privilege certain languages have, right? So let's take, for instance, a language like Catalan, right? Now it's making waves, right? And it wasn't the case all the time. It's because they are now really pushing for their own language, for their own culture, for their own country also, right? So that's a language which is still a European languages, but still might fall within a certain definition of minor language. So I'm a little bit hesitant to always um, group um, minor languages as being part of the global south. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, my work is also to do with languages I know, and which is why I don't do this work necessarily with Spanish and French, which I also speak and work with. Um, for translations, I like to focus on Sinhala and Korean, because for me in the political spectrum, those are less privileged languages. And in that sense, for me, they are minor languages. What are some of the obstacles to your translation work in terms of access? Never mind that you must have spent years and years and years studying <laughs> languages. But I, I, in in some ways, it's it's interesting because I think in the academy or in the humanities, at least, it's so much just what we do that that doesn't like. It's not like oh, you speak this and that and that. It's like oh, okay, you know, that's an unusual combination, perhaps. But then mm -hmm. also you know why wouldn't why wouldn't you study korean like we we also get so lost in our own eurocentrism that english is always the kind of the the center of everything um nevertheless i do want to recognize that that you know the the range of languages you just mentioned you must have spent quite some time on that uh, on studying those and again as we all know uh, language study never stops um but I'm not talking about that as an obstacle, mm -hmm. like how do you find the time? It's more like what's available and how is it valued in the academy as well as beyond? Yeah, so um, yes, th that the, the things you mentioned about learning a language, that's like taken for granted in academia. Right. I think it's like, oh yeah, sure, you have to speak the language, right? But there is no real acknowledgement of the years and years you pour into actually knowing it well enough so you can do this work. Mm -hmm. um, but um, to, to respond to your question, um, so there's so many problems, but let me just focus on a couple, right, for the sake of time. Uh, but one would be, um, so, so translation is so important for, for, the, for the reason that I was just talking about earlier, right, because it makes visible bodies of knowledge and epistemologies that are not from the Eurocentric West, right? And the moment you have uh, other forms of knowledge and epistemology is available, it creates the possibility of dialogue, of conversation, of engagement, right? Yeah. Um, but if you look at existing anthologies of translation, they primarily carry canonical Western or Eurocentric authors, right? For instance, translations from French, Spanish, Italian, which is fine, but then, um, you know, this is something people take for granted. So the idea is like, Oh, this is the canon and there's nothing worthwhile outside this canon right yeah 
So this is a canon fundamentally unequal, um, which somehow creates this notion of invisibility of existing translations in other literary uh, cultures. Um, and then you have the problem of bibliographic databases. For instance, if you take WorldCat or UNESCO's Index Translationum, um, again, you find this absence, right? Either there is an absence or there is a, like a minimal amount of translations which finally feature in these non-Western languages and cultures um, from the rest of the world, right? Again, it's not even just from the global South, right? If you take the United States of America, where did all the Native American uh, narratives go, right? Um, if you take Hawaii, like where are those stories, right? Of the native uh, inhabitants before the US technically colonized them, right? Um, so I've, I've published a couple of years ago, I published an article on these issues also, but I think these are the two main issues for me. The first one is the, the invisibility, the total and complete invisibility, yeah. uh, which leads to misrepresentations and misconceptions of the kinds of knowledge which exist outside this Eurocentric canon. And the second is the kind of, again, a very colonial superior attitude certain scholars will take as a result of that invisibility, right? Okay. Uh, and this again leads to not having enough spaces for people who actually work on these cultures and languages and knowledges to be able to even um, engage in a productive way because there is no space. If there is no space to publish, if there's no space to exhibit what you found, if there's no spaces where you can have conversations, then how do you even be visible, right? So yeah. it's again, the imbalance of power uh, and those who have power to uh, facilitate this conversation and spaces belong already to these hegemonic cultures, right? Um, and apart from that, there are issues such as, you know, issues of transliteration, because again, right, it's you have to um, code everything almost in the Roman alphabet. Yeah. Right. So the moment you are working with languages which don't use the Roman alphabet, as in my case, I use Korean, which, you know, has nothing to do with the Roman alphabet. I right. use Sinhala, right? Again, there is not a single thing about um, the script which has any sort of connection to the Roman alphabet. Uh, but the moment you're working with languages like that and not with, let's say, French or Spanish or Italian, which still uses the Roman alphabet, right? Life becomes so much more harder when you're working on translations. Even just to find, let's say, um, a critical material or even existing translations or any material, it's a huge struggle. Um, because of something as simple as multiple transliterations existing for one text. Yes. Right. So I'll stop there. I can go on and on about the issues I've come across in translation, but I think that should suffice to show how complicated it is to work with non-Western languages. Thank you. Yeah, I think you're you're it's really the tip of the iceberg. And I also I have a, I have a lot of thoughts about this and a lot to say about this. Uh, but let's rather than going down a, a very long rabbit hole of <laughs> <laughs> everything that's terrible about this, um, let's frame this uh, in, a, in a more hopeful way mm -hmm. uh, and to end the podcast. And please take your time with this because I, this is a fun exercise. I'm going to give you a magic wand, mm -hmm. luckily, and uh, you can apply it in whatever way you can to your future research. So now what does it look like? Mm -hmm. So, wow. I mean, with a magic wand, I'll probably create more time, uh, you know, an infinite amount of time to do everything I want to. But since that's not practical or possible, um, I, I think it would be wonderful to um, create networks of scholars who are working on similar issues. I think this is not an individual uh, project. 
Um, and I think in academia, there is also that bent towards, um, you know, very sort of individual solipsistic kinds of work, which is, which is necessary, I think, when you're working on your own material. But at some level, um, I think scholars need to also make stronger networks. And these should probably go beyond meeting, you know, once a year at a key conference in your field, right? right. So I think, um, again, I've seen this happen uh, at Stanford through Center of South Asia, as a matter of fact, where we have the Sri Lanka conference, which kind of gets taken away by different institutions. It kind of cycles through different institutions, uh, but that's a good example, right? So it would be wonderful um, if there is a broader network which can create similar spaces for scholars working in not just South Asian languages. Of course, you know, as I mentioned, I, I work with Korean also, but you still see the silos, right? Um, yeah. It's very difficult to kind of really across these academic borders or sort of siloed disciplinary borders. Um, this is also why I've been in comparative literature for the last decade, because it's been one of the rare spaces which has given me the ability to do that. So I would love to see more work of that nature of what's usually practiced in a discipline like comparative literature to become more uh, broad, right? To see more people crossing interdisciplinary boundaries, talking to each other about the work that they're doing uh, and to really bring together a more uh, open and borderless academia, if, if, I, if I may say so, right? Um, so I think at an intellectual academic level, that's one thing I would love to do, um, perhaps even start to do and other people can contribute. Obviously it's a long-term project um, to really make a space for people who work across different languages from different regions, different language families, um, to come together and talk about these kinds of issues, which are common to, as I mentioned, you know, non-Eurocentric languages, and that's like a gazillion languages, really. Right. Um, to right. just look at India, look at the number of languages they have, right? Yeah. And as we know, a language dies every, you know, month. You would count. I think I was reading the, an article recently which gave statistics as to the frequency with which languages die. And with that dies a whole epistemology, a whole yeah. body of knowledge. And these are probably languages which have been around for thousands of years, which are dying now. Um, so that's one thing. And the other is more uh, to do with my own research. Um, there are lots of scholars who are already working on abolishing borders. Uh, Harsha Walia comes to mind as someone who's a really prominent scholar who just came out with a wonderful book on this. Um, so although I, of course, um, feel as long as this network of nation states exist, it's, it's a difficult thing to conceptualize a world without any borders, but I would absolutely love to contribute at a policy level yeah. uh, and uh, figure out a way to get my own research sort of trickle down to that level of actual policies and actual uh, action-oriented steps, which could help um, to address at least some of the more inhuman aspects of modern migration policies and practices. Uh, for instance, it doesn't really take a lot to give a person dignity or treat people with dignity, especially when you're going through a visa application process. Um, in my case, I've, I've experienced these very dehumanizing uh, processes and there is absolutely no logic to it. Uh, and this is given my background of being educated, having lived in the US for over a decade, being able to articulate in English, being able to think critically, I still encounter these kinds of racist discriminatory behavior in embassies, consulates, airports, security checkpoints. Um, so I would love to 
make my work count. Mm. Uh, and I mean, uh, not just by publishing books and articles and being able to speak in academic forums, but I would love to find a way to make this work really have an impact on the lived realities of people like me and people who are much less privileged, who would love to travel. And technically, we should all have the right to travel. It's Article 13 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the right to uh, move freely, freedom of right to move, right? Mm. Um, so somehow it becomes a problem uh, with regard to traveling internationally because the rights and privileges of the state becomes um, much more important than the rights of the individual. And obviously it's also a very racist approach to travel yeah. and uh, movement. Um, so yeah, in an ideal world, I would love to actually um, you know, make a dint at least um, in these kinds of uh, practices. Yeah. Um, and thirdly, I would say to continue with my work on translation, to be able to give exposure and voice and create a platform for languages which have been pushed to the periphery, yeah. um, not necessarily because of any uh, qualitative problem with the languages or the literatures or the bodies of knowledge they're creating, but simply because there are no platforms um, for those languages or cultures to be uh, showcased, right? Um, And this is a vicious cycle because I think academia is set up in such a way that there's difficulties for scholars who work in these kinds of um, areas, right? Because the less the platforms, the more difficult it is to get published or be heard. Right. so yeah, so I, I hope uh, moving to the future that I can again contribute to spaces and platforms which can help scholars like that and which can again diversify and democratize um, platforms of knowledge we engage with. I wish you, <laughs> if I had the ability to give you that magic wand, I would. I wish you all the best. I mean, I think uh, many of our listeners, uh, including myself, uh, are absolutely on board with your desires, desires and, and to um, and not just for the sake of justice, create a more equitable world, but also for the sake of scholarship. I think our scholarship is so limited by these um, by the gatekeeping and the, the power structures and also the, uh, the, the border, the nation state borders. And so all of that put together um, makes our work that much more limited and that much harder to move beyond if we want to go outside of these limitations. Thank you for talking to me today. I <laughs> Sometimes I take to my son when he goes off mm-hmm. in the morning, I say, go and change the world. <laughs> That's usually his response. <laughs> uh, so I'm saying to you, please go and change the world. I wish you well. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Lalita. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I also, as always, want to thank Salam Shiva for creating the music for the intro and the outro and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.
come fast.